Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Just in case we get some peeps that want to shout a question out to you. There you are. Fuck, where's the, who cut your hair, man? I went in on that. <laughs> <laughs> you heard me making you fun of your hair before. Um, it's fresh. Okay. Mine's fresh, too, but two weeks ago, ain't fresh. You got, what, you got to cut every week or what? Uh, every three weeks. <laughs> yeah, we're getting real personal now. Yeah. All right, let's get to 610 off here. I don't listen to 610. It just happened to be on. <laughs> All right, Dave Barrick, I appreciate the time, brother. Thank you, man. Oh, sir, um, my pleasure. I know that coming. you continue to be what I call a political lightning rod, so I appreciate the time coming in. And as you mentioned earlier, you got Sandy Annunziata coming on uh, later in the week. Um, Jim Diodati in July. So, uh, uh, man, there's a lot of issues swirling around the region right now. And, and, of course, the local media is just feasting on it. And, you know, I've been guilty of calling the local media out on, dude, what do you think no one wants to come to Niagara for? You guys keep printing all this garbage about pornographic images. And, like, hey, yeah. well, And I'm not making any excuses, but... and. You know, the media will say, we'll stop doing stupid things and we'll stop reporting them. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but it, it seems like on all sides, I mean, right down to Bill Sawchuk's removal and the seizure, and then somebody says it's under a hat. And it's just, wow. I mean, I couldn't look at local politics until a little while ago. And then when I was kind of brought up to speed on the clickiness of it, and at that time it was all liberal. And now you've seen, you know, the conservatives come in and take power back. And now the liberals are pissed, it seems to me, and do anything to get it back. And so, anyways, uh, I don't want to turn this into a monologue. You're my guest. So, Dave Barrick, uh, operations director for the NPCA and uh, elected regional counsel for the town of Port Colborne. Um, dude, what's wh- what regional issues have got you cranked up these days? And I, I know you're not going to point to probably the HR issues that's making the media these days, but like, w- what do you find is on your lips as far as, you know, when you're talking to constituents, things that you go directly to is the most important issue in Niagara? Well, okay, so uh, first of all, thanks for having me today. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate that. Um, so when I talk about constituents, uh, I'm going to talk about my constituency, and that is in Port Colborne. Which which may have a, a different um, uh, lens than certainly you know people in St. Catharines or, or other areas of the region, and that's just the the makeup of the region as a whole. We're a community of communities, and I get elected by the city of uh, residents of the city of Port Colborne, and uh, I get elected on a platform of keeping property taxes low, uh, job creation, getting Port Colborne's fair share, uh, accountability and transparency, and working for seniors and young families in Port Colborne. There's a, a higher uh, uh, proportion of seniors, and there's quite a few young families there as well. Um, I'd say the region has and is delivering on those objectives. There's, uh, I sit on the region as budget chair, 
and uh, primarily because to fulfill my mandate of why I was elected to keep property taxes low, we had a 1.48% average annual tax increase this term of council. And to put that in contrast, and I'm going to compare the city of Port Colborne as an example, they are approving their city budget tonight, likely approving it, at 6.7%. So their one-year budget, if it's approved tonight, which looks like it will be, is a larger increase than the region in the last four years combined. So the 1.4% is under inflation. It really is a lot of work. That's uh, where I do most of my work is uh, keeping property tax increases low. And again, getting Port Colborne's fair share. So tens of millions of dollars invested into Port Colborne infrastructure uh, over the years as well. So those are the issues that matter to my constituents. Those are the issues that matter to me. Uh, there are some other issues that, as you diplomatically pointed out, uh, uh, matter to other people uh, for other agenda reasons and purposes. And you highlighted, uh, you articulated, you know, kind of a liberals versus conservatives type of construct. I would reframe it a little bit more because I think people use a party banner as a bit of a rallying cry. And it's just not so. Especially, especially municipally, we are independent legislators. I've been a uh, federal liberal really since 1993, so I kind of grew up under the Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin era. Okay, well, hang on to say that again. You're a liberal? Yes, fe- <laughs> federally, federally. Um, okay, federally. And, uh, and difference. I, I still pay my, my dues every month. I was on the Liberal Party uh, okay. executive for our writing association. But it shouldn't be a surprise because, again, as I was saying, um, I, I grew up under the Chrétien Martin era. They um, reduced the debt. They were responsible with, with money. Paul, Paul Martin was a great finance minister. Man. Right. So now, when I bring that same value set and I get elected on a platform of respecting taxpayer dollars, automatically people assume I'm conservative. So that's that's just okay. not so. Part, I, I, party politics for me have nothing to play in the mix municipally. Um, you know, when you're talking about roads, you know, pothole issues, party politics don't matter mm-hmm. with all due respect. No one's calling saying toe the party line on this one, right? It's, it is uh, individual basis, individual merit system. The concept of what does come in play, though, I would suggest is, uh, and I'm going to frame it as an old guard, people who have been in charge and responsible uh, for the region for a couple of decades. They aren't anymore. And so and they're like, pissed. And so, you know, again, it's, <laughs> oh, my gosh, let's raise the flag of, uh, partisanship. Cool. If you look, the cabal, the cabal. It's ridiculous. What was it before when when the several quote unquote liberals were responsible? Uh, wasn't a cabal. Maybe well, I called it, it was, a clique. Everything was rainbows. Nobody. Everything was rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> Give me a break. So if you look at uh, you know people who are working together independently today, uh, guys like myself, John Maloney, Jim Diodati, Selena Volpatti. Uh, Brian Beatty to agree, uh, and, and others, we're all liberals. You can't cast this all into one bucket and say, conservatives, uh, evil, bad thing. Hmm. That's not so. Wow. I, I think many people will be um, surprised to hear that, but, hey, I appreciate you uh, and your frankness. So uh, can you speak to the 
um, the public relations disaster that has been the Niagara region lately. I mean, we can point to the media and say you're a little biased or you're a sensationalist, and I think they have been all of that. Uh, but the region has been a shit show. It's been a dumpster fire for a long time. Um, maybe I'm uh, overstepping, or exaggerating a little bit. I don't think so. But uh, what do you, I mean, we can talk about quality of candidates. We can talk about code of conduct. What a fucking waste of time that whole exercise was. Um, but what, what's your take on the PR disaster that this has been? Like, this is hurting Niagara. We're making international news in some cases. In other cases, even if it's just Hamilton picking us up, which they rarely do, CHCH, you know, once in a while, if something bad happens, they report on us. Um, do you have any idea what the fix is around the PR disaster that this has been and how we can maybe uh, turn the tide on it? Because uh, this is important to me. Uh, Niagara's a great place to live, but more and more I think people are throwing their hands up and going, fuck this. Like, I mean... We can we can see all the negative and we can see all the positive. I think you forget about the positive when when the the press is constantly harping on what is perceived as corruption or nepotism or cronyism or whatever it is. Speak to the PR issue that Niagara Region faces right now politically. Okay, thanks. So I think the crux of it is a is a segue from what we were just talking about. There is a friction in Niagara, certainly uh, from a political context of, and I'm going to frame it up as old guard versus new guard rather than liberals uh, versus conservatives. And so there's, uh, I would suggest, uh, networks uh, or factions of new, younger people, uh, more recently elected, uh, you know, other people who are interested in getting elected even now um, versus people who have been elected a long time, uh, career politicians, uh, former politicians who just can't let go. And so that's the crux of the friction. With that comes longstanding relationships. Uh, they don't disappear overnight. And I'd suggest that the old guard has um, longstanding relationships with certain members of the media. So um, I would suggest that in some cases... Uh, political factions commandeered uh, local local uh, uh, reporters or uh, local publications for a specific purpose, and that is to tear down the current administration. So you can get elected one of two ways. You can build yourself up or you can tear someone else down. It's very clear in this case. They are uh, doing their best to tear down this administration. This administration is not their enemy. Uh, a successful administration is their enemy because how do you get elected? If they're doing so well and I would suggest the region's better today than it ever has been now you wouldn't get that reading local publication but the facts are the facts when you look at um, unemployment rates today the economy um, tax uh, the taxes uh, how we've been more responsible with spending etc uh, etc et want you to look at code of conduct naval gazing integrity commissioner those types of things uh, because it's designed to elicit an emotional response. The facts don't matter today like they used to. And uh, those in the press and others with their own agendas, they know that. When you look at social media as well, we have social media, I guess, uh, we were all supposed to be netizens and the world was supposed to be equal and great. And you have 
misinformation and inf information side by side. So it's up to us more than ever to determine and figure out for ourselves which is which. Hmm. Um, so it is incumbent on us. We're diluted with all kinds of information misinformation. Hmm. And I, I know your initial question was about the PR thing. That is not going away. It's there by design. Certainly, it'll still be there until after the next provincial and municipal election. After that, we'll see. If a majority of the old guard candidates get in, it'll be rainbows and unicorns of the region all over again. If a majority of uh, newer people want to continue a pathway of uh, change, you know, we're fixing a lot of problems that have been at the region for a long time. Burgoyne Bridge is a major problem. Uh, it's still under OPP investigation. Um, there's been other distractions to try to get people to look away from Burgoyne Bridge. Well, we're the ones that started the value for money audit on that forensic audit put in the OPP's hands. We put in place other value for money audits to make sure that public tax dollars are being spent wisely. We've changed systems and processes. Um, recently, I think there was an article talking about some of the turnover of the region. There was more turnover under the previous administration, specifically when Harry Schlang was the CAO and Gary Burroughs was the chair. Um, I think he got rid of over 80, over 80 people and spent $4 million. Uh, packaging people off. There was a greater turnover than the nurse today. And you don't get that reading the the local paper. Mm. Are you in favor of term limits? I know that's not probably something you can, you know, you have to respect the Municipal Elections Act, but I mean, uh, at any level, are you, do you think the term limits is something that we should look into? Yeah, I, you, I see, could, you spoke about career politicians, and I just think yeah, that some right. of them have been there for so long and, and maybe effective, maybe great people, and then you just think, wow, um, it's just like rubber stamping these guys back into office, and I'm not sure the motivation and the um, the enthusiasm is there that you might get from uh, someone else coming in taking their place. Well, yeah, so I think two things. One, I'm open to endorsing a, a term limits. I have no problem with that. The, the bigger issue, though, for me is the, again, the career politicians, the ones that are basically full-time. So now it's, I rely 100% on an income as a mayor, an MP, an MPP, where I'm considered a full-time politician. That's part of the problem. When people's incomes are solely 100%, um, that they have to get elected to to make a living. That's where you see issues arise in terms of saying and doing anything to get elected versus doing the right thing for the public that we serve. It's a little different on a part-time basis. You know, people have, uh, uh, they're not getting elected because they need the income. You look at a counselor in Port Coburn, I think it's 10 grand a year or something like that. So uh, it's a little bit different, I think. But term limits across the board, sure. How about referenda? Non-binding plebiscites, I mean, especially municipally, it's a very effective tool to gauge the pulse of the electorate with something that, you know, isn't going to hold the politicians' uh, feet to the fire as far as, you know, uh, following through on it. But at the same time, and I know uh, Petrovsky brought a couple, well, a resolution at least forward that said, I want to ask these questions on the next uh, ballot, uh, and it I don't know, got shot down maybe just because it was Andy Petrowski or maybe it was just a wholly and completely bad idea. But, I, I mean, I looked at it and went, yeah, hell yeah. I want to know what people think about this, that, this, that. And if it's, you know, even if it's only five questions, it's going to be extraordinarily insightful, I believe. 
Yeah, it's true. So uh, let's play it out um, where they have done it. And this is a, a big global scale, but Brexit, as an example, was a, was a referendum style. And you look at the other influences that come into play. So it makes a lot of sense um, if you can get proper factual information out to people. And a lot of our conversation so far is the challenges with misinformation. Um, uh, there's a, It's funny, there's a book called Weaponized Lies. I didn't make that term up, but but that's what's out there. Uh, so they're designed to undermine. That's out there every day. So a plebiscite in the world we live in today, and you look at Brexit as an example, and some would use the Donald Trump being elected example of other influences that come into play to shape public opinion so that they're not necessarily making uh, properly factual, informed decisions. They can make any decision they want, but the assurance that I'd like to see is uh, that the decisions are based on uh, facts and information. And uh, so the cases so far is that that's not the example. If you put something out there as a plebiscite, get ready for all kinds of um, misinformation being spread around. Now, that's our job as elected officials. It's not up to uh, individual who's, you know, um, whatever their day job happens to be, raising a family to sit there and do their homework on every issue that comes forward. That's probably why we get, get elected. We're the ones that have to read the reports. We're the ones that have to weigh the facts and make informed decisions. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. You know, certain cases it might make sense, like directly electing a regional chair. Um, and I think that was one of the items that Councillor Petrowski put forward at the time. That's a uh, foregone conclusion now. The province has decided on their own. We're just going to do it. Mm, um, so I hate that's, that. That's one case in, in I'm not opposed opinion. to the direct election of the chair. I think there's problems with it, and there's pros and cons to both. I mean, uh, but this is going to this is going to turn into a huge election with a huge budget, and you're going to have to have deep pockets to run for chair and win. I mean, you're, you're not running from a little town. And, well, <laughs> Fawn Hill? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you are. I don't know, but it just seems like you, you better have really connected friends and really deep pockets to run – What's the budget of a, a regional chair going to go for? I don't know. but uh, So I think there's pros and cons to that. But what I hate about it is, the, is the, I'm tired of the province shoving things down our throat. This is what you're going to do, including the creation of the region. Would you support abolish, uh, uh, abolishing this governance body if we had a, a serious, uh, stable plan to uh, provide shared services and sharing group buying and, uh, you know, provide water and wastewater and garbage and all the things that, you know, uh, police and maybe even fire. I mean, there's so many things we could put under that umbrella of a, of a, a service provider with a very, sm you know, small board of directors that just basically rubber stamp things maybe. I don't know. Am I living in a dream world? or uh, Like I look at the region and I, and I just feel like, it seems like, and you could disagree with this, and please tell me how I'm off, but I feel like the corruption is so deep, whether it's staff, whether it's hiring practices, whether it's nepotism, cronyism. I mean, they're carving up 10-kilometer pieces of roads into 10 contracts to give to their buddies. Like, I just don't see how you can make this uh, a governance body with any integrity without just completely demolishing it. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, I toyed with a few of my friends who are political only because I won't let them not be. <laughs> like one, 
when they're with me, it's just that's that's what's on my lips all the time. I asked you, like, what do you talk about? I'm constantly about politics, and I, I just I tweeted the other day. Do you think there's an appetite for a platform of a regional politician to say, I'm running on the platform that in two terms, my job won't exist. <laughs> It'd be great running for chair to do that, but I mean. So uh, if I can, here's the challenge with, with that. By the way, I, um, I'm not opposed to certainly having a discussion. It's a discussion that crops up more from people that live in St. Catharines versus, for example, uh, people that may live in Port Colborne or smaller municipalities, right? Do you think the smaller people are less concerned about the region as a governance body than the bigger? Not smaller people, but smaller Smaller uh, municipalities. Yeah, Yeah, right. Part of the concern is that, uh, quite frankly, St. Catharines will dominate. St. Catharines does dominate. So our voice won't get heard. And if you look at the Hamilton amalgamation, which occurred, Flamborough, Dundas, Aldershot, uh, Stony Creek, et cetera, they all had the same concerns. You know, the, the bigger municipality is going to take all our resources and we're managing fine and what do you know and you're going to tell us what to do. All the whole argument. The province didn't leave it up to them to figure it out for themselves because, quite frankly, would never get unanimous consent to proceed. Mm-hmm. The province just went ahead and did it for Toronto, Sudbury, Hamilton, Ottawa, other areas. Quite frankly, Niagara was on deck. Uh, they were going to do that with Niagara, but then the government changed. And so they left it out, and now this government says, you guys figure it out. Well, there's 12, 13 municipalities in the region. Uh, it's tough to get them to agree on uh, anything, let alone something as complicated uh, as this. The, so if people want that, they should petition the province, uh, number one, because the province can do it, uh, rather than look at the self-interest of local municipalities. The other interesting dynamic is there's 12 municipalities. Every mayor, by virtue of being elected mayor, is on regional council. And by the way, not everybody knows that. Do you think the mayor should be on regional council? Wouldn't that be the first step in making it a more democratic institution by getting the big boys out of there that just want nothing but their own backyard? They're not voting in the favor of the people of the region. They're voting for their own backyard every yeah, time. And, and then they start voting in a block, too, which even concerns me more. It's not the mayors as individuals. It's the positions. Uh, where you sit is where you stand. So the public expects their respective mayor to get uh, whatever they can from the region for their neck of the woods. That's their job. But to go back to your question about getting a council to agree to dissolve itself, and I talked earlier about this, the, the self-interest of permanent full-time employees, uh, politicians yeah somebody's gonna stand up and say i vote to no one's gonna vote themselves out of a job Mm. not if it's their full-time job if it's a part-time gig yeah i think you could you you likely could get um uh a majority of the 18 there's 18 part-time uh directly elected there's 12 mayors right there'll be another uh another added politician soon uh west lincoln has added a seat of course which i voted against by the way because I'm not in favor of adding more politicians. Stop voting with my conscience. It, it really well, drives me crazy. I try to hate <laughs> you as much as possible. Adding politicians <laughs> to problems never solves uh, never solves them. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Dual direct when it came. Uh, I mean, I got a list of things that we can talk about of wastes of time and resources. Um, are you a one Niagara guy? You know, I uh, you know we talk about 
I'm a decentralization guy from my way back in my days as a Green Party candidate and still subscribe to many of their principles. Um, the further the governance body gets away from the citizen, the ratepayer, where they live, the less interested, the less uh, motivated, and the less um, uh, intelligent that body can be about what the solution for those people can be. I mean, Ottawa's a perfect example. They don't know what's going on in Wayne Fleet so much. I mean, they have an MP that's supposed to keep them up to date, but in reality, it just doesn't work. So the further they get away, so I've always been a decentralization guy. Uh, when Senzik championed this double direct, I went on 12 agendas in the region, the first time ever, to speak against it. And I only had to speak in St. Catharines when they killed it. And, man, was that a load off my chest because I didn't really want to have to go around on this dog and pony show of uh -huh. standing against something that I believe would not fix anything and could be the lead uh, wedge for the discussion of let's just make it one Niagara. Let's do away with the municipalities. We can do it better. We can save money. We all know that's bullshit. You're not going to save a dime. In fact, there's decentralization going on all over the province. Many people that have been forced to amalgamate, you know, municipalities, not many, but there's been a few that have de-amalgamated. So um, I don't remember specifically what your position was on the double direct when it came. You must have voted, uh, well, it passed at the region, so it had uh, a majority of uh, support before it went back for the uh, the uh, triple majority. But what's your take on, you know, we're going to save all kinds of money, let's make it a one Niagara? Because I, I think it's, it seems like a popular idea from the uneducated go, yeah, yeah, let's make it one Niagara, we'll be better. But, I mean, if you look at the go noncommittal, I mean, there's many people standing up and saying, see, this is what we can do when we work together. Well, see, we were 12 municipalities working together with the region. Uh -huh. So 13 entities that got this done. So well, what the hell do we need to be one super city for? What's your take on that? So that, you had a couple of questions there. One was a uh, specific matter that came to the region I, I voted for, uh, dual duty for St. Catharines regional councillors. Right. Um I am a little more cautious at large, but I don't want to, um, if it's something that St. Catharines wants for their own governance, and that's how it was pitched, by the way, it was, look, it's not going to, it's not going to make dual duty in Niagara Falls or Welland or, you know, let's try it and see how it works. So I'm okay with getting it, moving the dial forward, see if you can get the triple majority and have the discussion. Uh, and as you know, the city of St. Catharines, who started the discussion, ended the discussion, mm -hmm. uh, which I would uh, go, suggest Haywood. might have been a bit of an irritant for other <laughs> regional councillors uh, at the time. So the the, dual, the issue with the dual duty model is you actually have it today in the mayors. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. Mayors are dual duty. The mayors, again, where you sit is where you stand, are by nature of the roles parochial. They have to be. Part-time uh, regional councillors are directly elected to the region, can afford to have a more region view, region-wide view. If you peg them down to, uh, I would suggest, a hyper-parochial model of, and because the conversation next was uh, ward-based, mm. uh, which is even worse in terms of where's the interest of the region when you're talking about a specific neighborhood now that they're accountable to, uh, it exacerbates the problem. A lot of it, I think, is, again, we can 
keep talking in circles amongst ourselves, it won't matter. It's the province's decision. Uh, so people are better off uh, contacting their MPPs or contacting provincial government if they want to see that kind of change, whether it's one region or 12 municipalities. I remember there was a study done back in the 90s, I believe, where they recommended three municipalities, like basically kind of along the riding, riding boundaries today. There was uh, the Niagara River one, the, well, the Welland Canal Corridor, and then West Niagara. So there, was, there were options presented then, and, and it ended up being status quo. So there seems to be a lot of time and energy spent in uh, looking at options and kicking it around and this and that. And then, but we always end up with a status quo because it's the decision-making framework that is the core of the problem. Um, the province has to make a decision. Uh, we will not, it's by design, we will not be able to have that consensus moving forward. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're, again, where you sit is where you stand. You could look at um, following the riding association boundaries or even school board boundaries because then it crosses local municipalities. Um, and then the conversation of not having mayors on, like y y would, would you really be able to get local municipalities to agree that their mayor's not on a regional council? Mm. Would you really get a, re a, a mayor who's a regional councilor to, to vote that way? Um, so it'd be a lot of work, a lot easier if the province took leadership and made a decision on it. What do you, and you can't say GE or go, what do you point to as uh, successes on your two, this is your second term on regional council, right? Correct. So what, do you, what are you confident to stand and say, hey, we delivered on this? So again, because there's so many people that say, what the, what have you guys actually done? And we could say it in St. Catharines as well. It's, you know, it's, you know, and maybe we got a lot done in the last two terms because there was huge infrastructure projects and there were some immediately important things on the agendas. I don't know. I don't, you know, the only thing that really raised my hair was this double direct thing. But mm -hmm. what are you proud to say that you've accomplished at the region as far as, uh, you know, and, you know, you, you talked about economic issues and jobs. And sure, even, you know, you've heard this before, you're a politician, so our responsibility is to create a climate that business can flourish in. We don't create jobs at any level of government. Correct. And every election that comes out, it's <clears throat> jobs, jobs, jobs. Now, taxes, that's a different story in most cases. But we don't create jobs. You know, we can only recruit and do what we can, but uh, I'm interested as to... You know, you, you got to hear it as well. I mean, I'm not an elected official, but you, you must hear, like, what have you guys done for us anyways? Like, what do you do to make your money over there, earn, earn your money? Sure. I'm going to speak uh, on behalf of results, regional results for Port Colborne. I'm not going to speak on behalf of the region as a whole. Um, so, number one, I anticipate leading into the next election, you're going to see a uh, little more information being provided in terms of the record this term. Uh, certainly, we can't rely on local media to get the region's message out. Um, so you'll, you'll likely you'll likely see more of people's records getting into the next election. Uh, again, you mean like a voting record, or what they've uh, accomplished? The record, yeah, accomplishments. Okay. Uh, kind of like a a term report okay. of, uh, of factual results that have occurred. Uh, part of it, again, as I highlighted, uh, average uh, tax increase, property tax increase of one point four percent, which is below inf inflation, and I would suggest below any other local municipality. Um, the water, wastewater rates, waste management rates kept uh, added around 1% uh, 
uh, as well. Water bills and pocketbook issues are important, especially if you like mine with young families and seniors. Um, that's the primary reason why I got elected, and that's the primary um, deliverable that I have, and I and I results are that I do deliver on that. Uh, the job creation component, again, we don't create jobs, we facilitate. Uh, our economic development office has been overhauled. Uh, we're working better together with local municipalities than ever before. Um, taxes are important. Development charges, industrial waiver on development charges uh, are important. So there's been some process-oriented, some policy-oriented, some tax changes, development charge waivers, all those things together uh, have, have led uh, Niagara to be more economically prosperous than certainly the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, and the, and the, don't take my word for it. Stats Canada take the... Uh, the record is what it is, uh, low, lower unemployment rate, higher uh, growth in terms of permits and development. It's not all the Niagara region uh, government doing. Uh, obviously, global economy has comes into play, the, the GTA corridor swinging down, currency exchange. There's other factors. Mm. But we're part of all those factors because uh, we could have easily went the other way. Um, getting, for me, poor government's fair share. For Corbin, I'd say the South End, generally speaking, has seen a slow erosion of services over time. So it's a different dynamic than maybe St. Catharines, uh, if you can change the lenses for a second. Uh, service has been constantly taken away. A lot of them provincial health care, the hospital closure, urgent care, uh, uh, sorry, emergency room closures, threat of hospital closures, uh, things like that. Um, we've had our police station threatened to be taken away on a regular basis. Hmm. So I sit on a police services board and we can go there if you want to. Uh, but one of the first orders of business I had there was leave the Port Coburn police station alone. And so we secured it uh, for certainly this term of council. Um, ambulance shifts in Port Coburn were threatened to be taken away. Uh, so again, I just step in and remind people, look, you shut down our emergency room. And remember the commitment you made when you shut down the emergency room was commitment to increased ambulance care. Well, some people forgot that. It's not all the same players a couple of years later. So to go in and remind them, no, 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 you're not taking services away. Number one, stop the services from bleeding away. Stop the erosion services. Number two, enhance services. So we've actually enhanced service delivery. We've added more frontline officers when it comes to policing. We've added adi additional shifts in ambulance care when it comes to health care concerns. Um, we've added housing stock, both um, rent geared to income supplements in Port Coburn and uh, new constructed buildings in Port Coburn. Um, additional monies through grants that we don't, the region doesn't have to, they're not obliged or under jurisdiction to do, but we have grant programs, uh, several grant programs uh, to help and facilitate the local area. Uh, over $400,000 into the Portland Marina, um, over about a million dollars into the city-owned infrastructure for east side water, wastewater development. And on top of that, the regional infrastructure improvements. Again, tens of millions of dollars, of millions of dollars into regional infrastructure improvements, water, wastewater um, in, in Port Coburn. Again, those projects maybe don't sound sexy, okay? Water, water lines, a wastewater line. Um, but people have flooding basements, people's water bills uh, going through the roof seemingly. It it is that's the raison d'etre of government yeah it's not it doesn't you know catch headlines you know it's not fireworks and events and uh other things but it's the basic reason of why we exist so let's do that and do that properly i'm glad you touched on emergency services in st Catharines. 60 percent of our operating budget is fire and 
police. Uh, I know there's a lot of talk about this remuneration package that was uh, for the chief forced out. Forced out was the media's term. I don't know. Uh, he had another term or an option on his contract. You guys didn't seem to want to pick it up as a as a board. Do you f- do you feel like we have to look at a better way of policing and fire services? And I've got nothing. Hey, I I would never want to be a police officer or a fireman or a medic, a first responder. It's just I just don't have the the temperament or <laughs> not. I don't have the stomach for it. So. I'm all for paying those guys a good wage. But when you look at a $110 million operating budget and 60% of it's fire and police, is that just the way it goes? Or do you feel like we need to take a, a look at, like, who's going to be the guy, the first community to say, you know what? No, you're not getting that that pay raise. You, you know, we'll pay, a, you know, in the States, they got volunteer uh, services in some parts and, uh, cops don't get paid nearly as much as they, in the states as they do up here. I think they're you know <clears> close <throat> to six figures for the most part. You know, hundred thousand dollar job. Uh-huh. Not saying they're not worth it, but at what point do you have? Is any community going to stand up and go, okay, we just can't afford this? So, uh, this police board did do that with respect to policing. So I'm not going to touch the the fire service stuff, especially for Porco or for uh, St. Catharines, because I'm just not aware of what's happening in St. Catharines when it comes to their fire service. Uh, but I can speak to the, the police board and the, and, the, and the police service. If you look again, historically, because you can apply history moving forward of the trajectory of where we've been and where we were going, if left unchecked, is a, a path of unsustainability. The police service budget was growing at a rate of two times, in some cases three times that of the Niagara region's budget. Uh, so it was outclipping significantly. You know, it might have been about $80 million um, 10, 15 years ago to $145 million real quick. Uh, the bulk of that is um, salaries, which are pegged to uh, union, uh, association, uh, collective bargaining, which is governed by the province through provincially legislated uh, arbitration system. So you talk about the ability to pay. The ability to pay argument's been done over and over and over and over again with little to no success. Why? Because municipalities, police boards, they actually budget for kind of a worst case scenario. And when they go in and they say, we don't have an ability to pay, they say, aha, sure you do. You got it right here. You already have it in the bank. You already have it aside. So we'll take that. Thank you very much. It doesn't carry a lot of water, right? The ability to pay argument, not with this current system. The region has acknowledged as a whole that the arbitration system is broken. And there's other political reasons for that, and I would say uh, an alliance between this provincial government and public sector unions. So it's that way and it's that way by design. Keep public sector unions happy so liberal MPPs can get reelected. That's one of the core reasons. What they will tell you, because I've been to Queen's Park and have talked to various ministers of labors, they say, figure it out amongst yourselves. That's their go-to answer. They're not interested in fixing the issue as it relates to the people that pay the bill. And that's that's you and me and homeowners and property taxpayers. So historical budget increases for, for the police board was in the 2003 to 2006 term was 30% that term. The term after was 18, the term after was 15. This term is 9%. So there's significant and real 
um, improvement, and I'd say much more sustainable today than, than previously, and the record says that. When you look at arbitrated settlements, they were always in the range of 3 to 4% year-over-year compounded. This arbitrated settlement is on average under 2%, so they're about 1.9% across the board. Again, if you look at the graph chart, it shows a downward trajectory like this. Part of the, why we were able to do that was while we, we did put some money aside, we didn't put the worst-case scenario money aside so that they couldn't say, oh, look, you already have it budgeted. And that's probably what they did before. They would they would raise, ta- uh, raise their budget 5%. Arbitrated award will come in at 3.8%. Guess what they do with the change, the difference, the 1.3%. They keep it. So I want to be more transparent about where people's money is going um, mm. and actually have and have credibility in the argument of we just don't have the ability to pay. Uh, so they couldn't point and say, yeah, sure, you've got a budget. Because quite frankly, uh, it wasn't... Uh, clearly set aside in, in, uh, in, in a pot of money that so we've now that the settlements come out we can write the ship again um, and that's why you've seen articles about this police deficit because it was tied to an arbitra- arbitrated uh, strategy which was successful by the way and so we did have some money in reserves and if you look at the region's 2017 year end we ended with a surplus inclusive of the police deficit. So um, the benefit to, to, to uh, the taxpayers is more sustainable policing services. And by the way, I mentioned earlier, uh, more frontline uh, personnel. We've repurposed some uh, positions to put them on the front line, and we've added some new positions by putting them on the front line, all well within the uh, better financially managed um, framework. Again, it's about doing better with the resources you have rather than always adding more resources and adding more resources. Programs and services that were important 20 years ago that are still in play, well, maybe there's different priorities today, and uh, and there are. So it's having those conversations and rolling up the sleeves during that process. The, the uh, arbitrated collective agreement process was a couple of years, a lot of work. Uh, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. So... Uh, I don't know if that kind of answers your question a bit. Hmm. A typical politician. Uh, <laughs> um, have you ever leaked a confidential in, in document in, in out of a sense of fairness or democracy for you know to to the media to you know this needs to get out and I'll do because obviously on both sides someone's leaking stuff to local media. I mean, I someone leaked the bridge report. I happen to get well. I think it went to the media first. Because obviously the Standard wrote all about it, the uh, uh, local oh, six ten reported on the Standard's report. I got my hands on it. I put it out there. And is there still people named in that report that still work at the region? <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna comment on I, that. confidential. Well, okay. report. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you ever leaked a confidential document thinking that you know this needs to get out there for the sake of the public? Well, let me let me put it this way. What I find interesting is. Um, the dual nature with which the whole conversation is viewed. Number one, you have some reporters who openly put in their publication leak stuff to me. Yeah, I just thought, well, I'm not supposed to see the tweet because I'm I'm blocked, but I I swear I just saw a grand little flash tweet saying, here's my email if you want to leak something confidentially. Correct. So here's how you do it. Give me the information. Here's how you do it. 
On the other hand, when he does get something, he tries to elicit a negative response from the people that they should be outraged that something was leaked. So you're encouraging it on the one hand, and then you're, uh, you know, so it suits for you if you get some information, but you're going to be quiet about this one or quiet about that. So it becomes very discretionary. Um, So I don't think that's fair to the public necessarily. Um, There are, everyone has a different sense of what's important for whom. But confidentiality is confidentiality, land, legal, labor, etc., so and there will be more news coming forward about an integrity commissioner complaint being filed about this matter. And I'm happy to speak to you further when it, when it comes out later. But it's not up to me to decide. Uh, it's confidential, but it's okay. It doesn't, it's innocuous. It's not going to hurt anybody, blah, blah, blah. You times that by 32 counselors, and all of a sudden... Um, you don't have anything confidential anymore. <laughs> and, and I, I kind of suggest that, that that's the case today. Uh, you know, we, we have staff giving us verbal updates because they don't want to give us anything in writing, email or hard copy because of what's going on. So the environment with respect to confidentiality of the region isn't very good today. I'd suggest that there's always been leaks, um, both local, municipally and regionally. They've always been there. Um, maybe what's different is reporters actively um, getting it, putting it on the front page, you know, bragging about how, how they get uh, access to all kinds of information uh, and then on the other side trying to smear uh, somebody else for leaking information. Until a judge drags you before, uh, until you get dragged before a judge that says, name your leak. Didn't that just happen in Quebec? <laughs> Getting pressed to rat out on their confidential informants. What a great move that is. That is. Um, you spoke about reserves. 250 plus million? In reserves? Correct. That's a fat reserve, man. What? I don't understand at all the economics of it. You're on the budget committee and have been at different levels. What the hell do we need $250 million in a rainy day fund? Well, I'm going to add to that. We have another $140 million or so uh, deferred revenue. If you add reserves plus deferred revenue, it's over $400 million. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, and I've said it before, it's historical overtaxing. Um, so you tax more than you need, and you generate these surpluses. Wait a and second. You, Did you just say we're overtaxed in Niagara? Historically. Oh, okay. <laughs> Regionally, historically. Um, but certainly that's not the case today. Those reserves don't get built up overnight. Those reserves have been built up over a significant period of time, uh, both partly by design, number one, and both partly because of uh, possibly efficiency in operations that relate to surpluses. 250 100 million is a lot of money but when you compare it to a two billion dollar uh 10-year infrastructure gap it's not a lot um a lot of that money is water wastewater reserves so it's off the water bill that you pay it's overbilling versus uh some overbilling yes and historically for sure uh but also Partly by design. I mean, the region, and I think the city of St. Catharines, they added a capital levy on purpose. Because it's coming. So, we know it's coming. We, yeah, it's coming. Massive water issues, water wastewater issues, yeah, infrastructure you, issues, anyway. You look at, um, excuse me, the region's plans for a new uh, water wastewater facility for South Niagara Falls because it's growing. That single project is over $100 million. One project. It, but you multiply the, um, over 10 years, the region's capital requirements, it's over two. 
Uh, so, if you believe in those numbers, by the way, I've always been a critic of scrutinizing uh, the capital budget, the 10-year plan on a go-forward basis. So, even if you cut that number in half, it's still a significant challenge to be grappling with. So, uh, yeah, th that's a lot in reserves, but here's what but it's planned to be used and used properly and it should offset future debenture payments uh, future tax increases and things like that but here's what i what i find interesting the the critics who um weren't happy with what they thought was a perceived year-end deficit coming forward uh were criticizing the potential financial mismanagement of the region because that they thought were they thought there was going to be a deficit uh turns out that it was a surplus, $900,000 surplus on the tax levy, by the way, um, which on a billion-dollar budget, it's pretty close. Regional staff have been given awards for accuracy in budgeting uh, in the last couple of years. So when you take it as a whole, it's quite accurate budgeting to actuals. But when it became a surplus, the critics who thought it was a deficit, now what do they do? They change the channel and say, oh, my gosh, now the surplus is a problem. The deficit's a problem. The surplus is a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, pick one. It's like the Marshall Gro uh, um, uh, Groucho Marx line. Uh, if you don't like my principles, that's okay. I have others. There's no consistency mm -hmm. in uh, in attacks from, by the way, sometimes the same individual uh, critic. I get they have their own agendas of maybe trying to get elected themselves, but be consistent uh, and have a set of principles. So the, that reserve, I think, uh, you'll see every every year we have discussion about how it gets spent. Right. And and if people think that that's a problem, then it's a good problem to have. Uh, let's touch on the uh, <clears throat> news hitting the paper. It's all over the media these days now about uh, HR hiring practices. You, you've you, you've taken a few arrows on this one too about taking a position that wasn't tendered or whatever the not openly competitive for. And uh, now Carmen D'Angelo is kind of the same boat. You know, leaks, uh, candidate names leaked. Obviously, uh, the uh, the image of impropriety stands pretty strong. You know, I don't know if there's a you know a portion of that that the media is not reporting on. I I frankly try and not look at the media because I, I can't stand to read most of it. But you can't get away from it. So, what's going on here? I mean. Um, there seems to be some serious competition for that CAO position. It seems like the least experienced guy got the job. It looks like it's insider favoritism or whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put on it. But I think this is what drives people mad. One, I think they're a little envious they're not getting their piece of the sugar. <laughs> like, to be honest, I think anyone would say, yeah, I want, a, I want a plum position that I, you know, didn't work for. Uh, didn't deserve, wasn't qualified for. Um, I don't know Carmen. I don't think I've even shaken his hand. The first time I saw him in person was at the region uh, a couple of weeks ago when they did that art installation, and, and uh, it was really well done. The place was packed. Saw a number of counselors and a chair and what have you, but it's the first time I ever laid eyes on the man. I don't have a you know I don't have anything an axe to grind, but when you look at that, you go man. This is, and this is what sends me back to this position of, of thorough corruption. Like, 
how do you get around the news of guys are getting good paying jobs without having to really compete against the strongest or competing against it and winning against the strongest qualified candidate. So you have a couple of things there. And <clears throat> part of what you've just stated uh, is the inference that is being purposely pushed out by design. In other words, HR matters by their very nature, legally, legislatively, are confidential matters. In other words, for you to talk to me about a CEO recruitment process, number one, I wasn't part of, but number two, um, you know what's confidential and I, and I can't speak to it. And reporters, uh, reporters know that. What that does, though, it, it allows a vacuum of information and conspiracy theories to fill the room, fill that void. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit high level, uh, cognizant that I can't, certainly can't talk about details. You mentioned my uh, my process, and I want to be clear. Uh, I'm not a spokesperson for the NPCA. It's my day job, and I'm an employee there like any other. And I did go through a competitive process for that position, uh, to be clear. Secondly, I got that position January 2014, and we had a quick chat right before we went live. Um, January 2014. I got elected re-elected October 2014. No issue, right? Um, so so where you're saying if the electorate had a problem with how you got the job, they wouldn't have re-elected you to the yeah, post? Yeah, people were trying to tie the two together at that time. And again, the public doesn't care about that. They care about how their taxes get spent. They care about service delivery. Um, so there's other agendas that will you know use... Um, and by the way, it's very dangerous, and you're going to have to bring me back if I get off a tangent here for a second. When uh, people criticize uh, part-time politicians or anyone who's interested in coming into office for their day jobs, uh, number one, I've always had a day job. Uh, I originally got elected in 2006. In that time period, about 12 years, I've been a sole proprietor, worked in the private sector, worked in the nonprofit sector and worked in the public sector. And it's never been a problem as it shouldn't be for anybody else until recently. And I'd say because it's a height of a distraction. If people have an issue, not only with me, but others come after me on my record as a elected official, not uh, my day job. And there's other examples, plenty of examples. Cindy Forrester was a nurse. Jim Bradley was a teacher. We have regional staff that are city councilors. We have regional staff that are school board trustees. We have or had other regional councilors who were school board staff. Um, there's city councilors that are teachers. So you have all walks of life on your local uh, elected officials, private sector, nonprofit sector, public sector, retirees, business owners, et cetera. That's the way it should be. And so to try to tease out or isolate one and make it an exception is just not the case. So I think it's dangerous. I think it's an assault on democracy, quite frankly. When I talk to other people about considering running for local office, they say, why, why do I want to risk my day job for that? Or even business owners, why do I want to risk losing customers for that? Um, 
it's and you it's, will. it's becoming it's becoming a, an issue because the critics aren't going after you for your record as an elected official. They're going after you for uh, a day job in, in a public sector where they know you can't respond um, or some other mechanism. And, and, and here's the degree with which it was going. <clears throat> Cindy Forrester, in her um, amendments to change the Conservation Authorities Act, one of her amendments stated that if somebody worked for a conservation authority and they ran for office, they'd have to give up their day job. Now, thankfully, that amendment didn't pass. It failed, mm -hmm. like every uh, one of her other amendments failed. But it's a dangerous road to go down when you start cherry-picking who can actively participate in the local democratic process and who can't. So, I, so I'm going to kind of leave that there. Um, the other aspect with respect to the hiring of uh, Carmen as CAO, first of all, the guy's doing a phenomenal job. And for critics who have an issue with, I'm going to call it the administration, so the chair's office, the CAO perhaps, and others, come after the elected officials all day long. But to start going after the staff... It would be unacceptable last term or the term before that. In fact, it was unacceptable previous terms of council. I'm not sure why it's acceptable today because now the the attacks, you know, we're used to it. I've got thick skin. Come after me all, all you want. And people do. It's part of a healthy debate, I think, when you when we challenge each other on, on public matters, what we were elected to do. It's unhealthy when you start going after people when you know they, they can't respond, such as people in their day jobs. Uh, like Carmen, like uh, Rob D'Amboise, uh, like myself in my day job. Um, so it's unfair to them, I think. There was a lot of rumor, innuendo, conspiracy theories published in the article that you referenced. There was a quasi-made-up kind of silly org chart thing that they put up there in the hard copy paper. What's the HR professional doing commenting on this at all? Well, again, look, uh, this stuff is... is it is, just seems like that would be the time for them to shut their mouth, but they just seem to be only too happy to comment i'm yeah so it, it doesn't help to the overall um uh discussion and look there will be more discussion this thursday at regional council i have no doubt about mm. that um, you'd be going for an extension on that curfew for sure but look i mean there was uh um I, I'm, I'm gonna say it's public uh, david oaks is the deputy ceo for the city of st Catharines. many would say that was preordained months ago in fact that position was uh created david, talk about tra trajectory was specifically have created a pretty good person. one <laughs> well, look, um, get me clear on this one, though, and we can go back to David if you want. But I mean, I can't. Maybe I maybe I don't understand it in, in reference to Carmen. Sits on the NPCA as a member of Hamilton. Takes a leave. Accepts a contract. To create the terms of reference for the CAO's position and then wins the CAO's position. You don't see a conflict there? Like, how can that not be a conflict? He, so just because I, he stepped off the board, was he, do I have the story right? And then he, well, he gets elected CAO of the NPCA and then hardly a lateral move over to the region. Like, am, do I have it wrong or is that? So I don't know if you have it right or wrong, to be honest, because uh, I don't know if he did do a terms of reference for a CEO or not. 
I think that's a really good question for the chair of the NPCA uh, versus, an, uh, again, my role there as a staff person. Mm-hmm. Your situation, similar from the standpoint that you had a relationship with the NPCA before you got your job. You were on the board, right? Correct. Now, Tony Quirk came on the show and said, I got no problem with it. Sometimes the board member that sits beside me or what have you is more in touch than any outsider could be as far as what the role of a director of operations might entail. I look at it and go, dude, it's fixed. The guy's on the board. He gets a fat job. I mean, you, you do pretty well as, part, as far as compensation goes. And again, even for a guy like me, I've only come around on you recently because you've stood up for a few things that uh, were very important to me. One, this integrity commissioner thing, you spoke all the right words. I don't think we need a freaking integrity commissioner. In fact, we don't even need a code of conduct. And if the code of conduct does not respect the charter, and that's why I was kind of on Andy's jock as far as I think you're onto something here. Now, he blew it all up, which is, you know, Petrosky's style. I have a belief that the code of conduct should respect freedom of should respect the charter, and uh, the fact that none of them do in Ontario is a problem. And I thought Andy, with his strange way of getting things done, was onto something that might actually help. And in my vision, it was like, okay, if you take this on, you could have a standard code of conduct for the whole province that respects freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and all, everything that all the subsections of the Charter guarantee, whether you like the Charter or not. Um, but going back to your situation, again, it, you know, I've come around on you only because I think we share some political, um, I don't know, we, I disagree with you on a lot of stuff too, but when it, when it mattered, I seem to be agreeing with the uh, Bart Maves. Jim Fannin agrees with the Bart Mays, but, I mean, you can't find a process issue that he's not educated. Like, he knows more than everyone in the room when it comes to a point of order, Uh usually. I look at Tim Rigby, and God bless him. I love Tim Tim Rigby. How long has he been there? He's still standing up and going, oh, what's going on? Like, I I don't mean that to, you know, as a personal attack on him, but I'm like, Tim. You've been there for how many decades and you still don't know how to speak to a resolution? And so I came from the camp, man. I've had the, you know, I put the the Pee Wee Herman blasts out there, you know, regarding, you know, I don't know. You know, it, it doesn't go unnoticed when you're an asshole. And I have been one many times. I still am. Uh, but I'm passionate. I care. I don't run in these elections just to get my name in the paper. I actually think I'm doing a service. And then... It's easy to hate on a guy that you think is uh, is accepting privilege. And, man, that's a dirty word these days, too. But he, And I think it, it's, it, it comes from a, an honest, if most people are honest, of I want my piece. I want my plum position. I want my little piece of graft or whatever it is. And so I think it's easy to, to hate on from a distance. And I've come around on you again we've never today's the first time we've met you know i we kind of facebooked here and there and you know i'll I'll 
shoot you a message during council one Which time. Which I appreciate. <laughs> yes. Don't pick your nose on camera. It's not I good for votes. Yeah, to be clear, I was No, wasn't. but I, I did. I think I sent you that message. You Don't did. do it. Go knuckle deep, man, because I'll catch you. Don't make me watch this stuff because I have to watch it. I have to know what's going on. I have to know what these guys, which way they're voting and stuff like that. So I was a hater, a hardcore hater, and you've got a few of them. And you're right, probably from the standpoint that you keep getting elected, you're always going to have haters. You're going to always have the press that takes the sensationalist angle. But how, like, and I can't speak to Carmen's appointment or whatever you call it. You're appointed as well. So how do you take something that you're intimately knowledgeable about? You got an inside track. You might even know someone on the hiring committee. You you know, it doesn't take much of a wink or a nod or an elbow in the ribs to go, dude, I'm your guy. Hire me. And we'll, we can all be friends again. Yeah. So let's, uh, you know, back up to the process side of things for a second. Um, being an individual who has experience on a particular board that is applying for a role in that organization happens all the time. And it can. And they do. And people get hired regularly. I think you don't see that as a conflict. No, wait a second. Uh, so it, happen, it happens often because process-wise, it's uh, allowed and it's applied. And there's value, values in the eye of the beholder if they think your experience on a board um, adds value to what may apply in the, in the job within the organization versus mm-hmm. someone who doesn't even know what in this case, conservation authority is what a watershed is, what restoration means. Um, so to be clear, my background is uh, degree is public administration. And so I have other uh, examples of experience from a, pl- a public administrative framework. I also have a private sector background um, with startups and commercial properties and uh, et cetera. So, Number one, I followed, although there was no policy in place at the NPC at the time, I followed best practice and best policy. By the way, there's a policy today on it, and the policy today I would have followed. I believe it was the uh, the former chair of the Hamilton Conservation Authority got elected to be their CAO. Uh, sorry, selected to be their CAO. Wow. So that, it that, happens. Yeah, that, that, I, that blows my mind that because, that's not a... Well, you can't, you can't discriminate. You can't say, Jim... You can't even apply to this job because you're on the board. There's no rule that says that. So but, what but you what you should do, though, and what I did, is you take a leave of absence from the board when you make the application. If you don't get the job, you're back on the board. And because it's HR confidential matter, you really shouldn't be telling the public and the world, hey, I applied for this job, and then oh, I'm back on the board because I didn't get that job. Mm-hmm. But you do have that, that process that's in play. And so if you do get the job, you resign from the board. And that's, that's what happened. In this case, um, the, the people responsible for hiring saw value in the experience, um, the experiences that I brought to the table, and I think everything that that entails. Um, so people may disagree, and they do, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the process. Well, I appreciate um, your comments on that. I, 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 I don't know how it can't be a conflict of interest, and, and especially when whatever the code of conduct or whatever it is that you sign says you're not allowed to, by sitting on this board or sitting at this council, 
you are not allowed to receive any personal gratification for lack of a better word or any you know benefit from sitting here and you know I used the example of the the chair being uh, hired as CEO well that's that's a benefit clear and present so I, I'm not sure and and Tony made the same point and you know this isn't my exp my field of expertise certainly I'm just talking about how the public looks at it and goes hey that's not cool he's on the board then he gets hired at the like that's inside job you know and so um and, and again again it, there's people that have their own um agendas that fan that flame there's no doubt mm -hmm. um and i can tell you i've had i've had other offers around that time and i've had other offers since then uh that uh would pull me away from the position that i'm in the reason i took it and the reason i uh, am still there now is because of the um my passion for public administration and um working on behalf of the, the public and the taxpayer versus purely private sector and the goal is make money mm -hmm. uh, the goal in public administration is a little different and that's service delivery on behalf of uh, the public so we made a lot of improvements in that organization and well, that was one of the reasons that i was brought on and part of it is making our parks profitable putting them in the black they were all being subsidized they were all in the red um, and so you see recently that uh, the board in their wisdom has had the ability to have a 5% budget reduction. Well, you don't have that ability unless there's other things happening internally that allow those options to come to the table. So, uh, again, people can agree and disagree with HR Pro. And this one, by the way, is about five years ago. And I would suggest the only reason people are talking about it is because of my other hat uh, as an elected official. Um, again, regional employees who are city councilors, um, regional employees who are school board trustees. Um, this is not uncommon. If you look across the province, other people who are other boards have gotten day jobs within those organizations. Um, it may be a flashpoint and people fanning the flames on it, and I'm fine with the discussion on a high level. The issue is I, um, I can't get into detail about <laughs> my day job because of the confidentiality of certainly the hiring process, number one, and the province's um, Information and Privacy Protection Act uh, legislation exists for that type of thing. So, in other words, if we were to have a fulsome conversation about my whole resume, um, or someone else's, or Carmen's, there's privacy protection legislation. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate part, again, is um, it allows other people to fill the void with conspiracy theories and things like that. Yeah. Again, I don't want to beat this to death, and I appreciate y your your take on it. Um, I don't claim to have all the answers. In fact, I think that's a pretty dangerous stand to take is like, yeah, that's my way or whatever. But I just, you know, you, you talk about taking a leave. Um, I still see the potential, in fact, the implied conflict of having a relationship and having the phone numbers of all your fellow board members and possibly the hiring committee and saying, dude, I stepped off. <laughs> I've applied for the job. I'd really appreciate your support on this. You know, that's, you know, the backroom dealing that nobody wants to deal with. And, and m most of the public, I think, would, would sit back and, you know, whether it's a personal attack or going after somebody that's, you know, obviously can't speak to it because of their employment, would, would look back and go, hey, that doesn't that doesn't smell my stink test or that doesn't pass my stink test type of thing, you know. So um, 
you know whether or not you take time off the board and i know carmen did as well and you, you did when you when you saw that position and and uh but the reality is there's a relationship there and there's uh there's you know the potential or at least it looks like you certainly could be saying hey seatmate beside me i want your support i want this job make sure i get it you know and for that guy to say yeah i work with you i know you to be a decent guy you certainly know the ins and outs of the the job position yeah i'll put you in that position and feel good about it and not ever second guess their potential conflict when the public goes oh yeah that's a total conflict you know whether or not it happens yeah, on a regular so basis or not the ceo the ceo makes the hiring decisions right and so you know there's a lot of inferences and again i suggest conspiracy theories and um you know the cabal type um mystique that has been purposely created around this type of stuff mm-hmm. um but you know public administration is public administration people can disagree all day long and they do but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the process and i'm going to keep repeating that because mm. um when people disagree they attack the person they make up conspiracy theories. There's nothing wrong with the process. The same process has been in play, you know, for the last 40 years or more. Um, so, trying to get to the crust of your question. Nobody I hear, was I complaining hear you, when uh, I, the appointees and all the jobs are going to the liberals. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> and that's when I started paying attention to local politics. All the people in power, all the staff members, were all liberal appointees, or liberal liberal hires, or what have you. Um, talk to me a little bit about. Um, where did this t- change, in, or maybe I'm off here, correct me if I am, the change in mandate for the NPC become pro-business and not cons- conservation? I mean, it's Niagara Peninsula Conservation Authority, not the Niagara Peninsula Pro-Development Authority. And and well, we can talk about thundering waters and stuff like that, but so when did this switch, and where did that mandate come? Who, who I, put I'm that gonna, I'm going to give you the bureaucratic answer because I'm a staff person. I right, okay. Uh, so we follow the legislation. However, individuals want to interpret it. Individuals can interpret it. We follow the legislation. And I would suggest you ask that question to the NPCA chair who's coming later on. But I, very savvy as well. It, oh, more so. <laughs> more, so. <laughs> more so. Yeah. He's a regular on, on, the, on the radio, so he, he'll be... Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, and he runs his expenses right down to the taxpayer to drive to CFRB. That's it's, snake. It's great, it's great publicity for, for Niagara. I agree completely. Do you know how much advertising costs on CFRB? No, I and don't I the cannot numbers, believe, and I'm not a Sandy Annunziata honk. Far from it. I like Sandy. I will give you that, but... I have all kinds of political differences with people. And I appreciate a guy like Sandy, and maybe you, where I can say, you know what? I couldn't, but I still I still appreciate who you are as a human being, as a man. Uh, not to be sexist, but like, you know, uh, I'm a guy's guy, and Sandy is certainly a guy's guy. Man, um, can you speak to this latest news item about the Niagara River? I guess maybe not because you're a staffer. Oh, what yeah, do you yeah. What do you so know about that? Yeah, that's a uh, NPC chair question because that's okay. that is a board, that is a hundred percent a board um, prerogative. Okay. Yeah. And what was it was a designation that this uh, volunteer group was looking for? Uh, I believe so. Okay. 
Sorry, I'm not really so helping stick you with that. To, <laughs> um, stick to the regional issues. Got it. Um, chair issue. I guess um, the lawsuit of Ed Smith from the MPCA is a chair issue as well. Yes. <laughs> yes, especially in a legal matter, yeah. Um, what, do, what do you think the, seek, uh, the small steps, accountability, or do we have it? You know, I don't, I don't, I can't stand here and have you answer every question by saying there's systematic corruption in the media and it's a, it's a conspiracy against the new regime. Uh, that gets tired as an answer, and I'm saying that, that you're using that answer for everything. But yeah, to be clear, I don't believe I use that answer for anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling a Kathy Newman on him. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is, <laughs> I think I hear a common theme with um, some of your answers. As to you know, it's it's not political left and right; it's old versus new. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are tired of political answers, and they want more accountability. 